Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. For decades, police have tried to unravel what happened to three young women who were murdered after being abducted from the Perth suburb of Claremont. It's Australia's longest-running and most expensive criminal investigation. But finally, there's some closure for the families. Bradley Robert Edwards has been found guilty of murdering 23-year-old Jane Rimmer and 27-year-old Kira Glennon. Justice Stephen Hall said that it's more than likely he also killed 18-year-old Sarah Spears. Sarah was the first of the three women to disappear, but her body has never been found. A lack of evidence means Edward's involvement in her disappearance cannot be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Many are haunted by the fate of those three young women. Today, you're going to hear from two people who were involved on the case. The first is former detective Paul Ferguson, who worked on the early investigation. Paul sat down with 10 News First reporter Claire Durrell to reflect on the case and the impact it's had on his life. So we're sitting here just on Stirling Highway, this main artery that runs through Perth, which kind of became the centre of this massive criminal investigation more than 20 years ago. Um, Paul, I thought I might start by taking you back to January 1996. At that point, did you, did you have any idea of just how big this case would turn out to be? No, none at all. No, 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 no one would have, no one could have. Um, I, I think I'd been in the homicide squad about four years at that stage uh, and um, there'd been a couple of other cases where people were reported uh, missing and within a relatively short time you can identify uh, the circumstances and then you, you hopefully find the body and, and take it from there. Um, no, this one, this one was something totally different ultimately. You were saying to me before, um, it became apparent pretty quickly that the circumstances of Sarah's disappearance were questionable and, and something to be concerned about. Why was that? Uh, yeah, as a, you know, I'd been in the, in, the, in the police force for a lot of years. I'd been in the CID a lot of years. Victimology was a relatively new thing at that stage. The, uh, the victimology, uh, it gives uh, an investigator an idea as to the risks that the victim is prepared to take, uh, the less uh, risks that the victim is prepared to take, the risk used to abduct that person or, or, or whatever um, raises on the offender's side. So, um, and uh, with um, Sarah, her risk factors were extremely low. So, so the circumstances of Sarah's disappearance meant alarm bells really started ringing? For, for Sarah, without a doubt, yes. So at this point, you're investigating the disappearance of Sarah Spears, and then just a few months later, Jane Rumor disappears. Another young woman, fairly similar appearance from the same area. 
What was going through your head at that point? Well, from an investigative point of view, um, it was a major concern. Uh, uh, we, um, bearing in mind that the West Australian had been uh, behind the Spears family and had raised the profile of Sarah's disappearance, uh, Claremont was a <coughs> affluent area, um, and uh, there'd been a, a fair bit of media publicity by the police and, and other bits and pieces. Uh, so there was a, a fair focus on, on Sarah's disappearance. Uh, then uh, on the 9th of June when uh, Jane uh, disappeared from the same location, a similar appearance as you say, um, that certainly raised uh, alarm bells as to, um, and at that stage we as an investigative team, team weren't talking about a serial killer because the definition of a serial killer is uh, three or more victims over an extended period of time. And the last one we wanted was uh, a serial killer. Um, so, But it certainly appeared at that stage that in, there was a very strong chance of a link between uh, Jane Rimmer and Sarah Spears and of course uh, the incident that occurred several years earlier in the Karakata Cemetery. What was the impact on the lives of, of those officers who were working on this case? Something that's very confronting, very high profile, and for a long time, there were very little developments. They owned the file, they lived the file, and every day they went to work. I went to every, every briefing in the morning and every briefing in the evening to ensure that I knew exactly what was happening in the file. So that and my role was to liaise with the media and try and get the public to provide as much information as possible. If you look at an investigation, any investigation, <clears throat> you know, where someone says, oh, you know, we, we, uh, we solved a particular crime. Police don't solve crimes. They're, they're like a, 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 a kid sitting down with a jigsaw puzzle. The information comes from the community, whether it be a, a close relative of the victim or whether it be someone's driving down the road and sees something. So that the skill of an investigator is to be able to go through all the information that they have and try and extract all of this information and put it into a picture that then forms a full picture that shows you exactly what happened. So um, it was uh, an incumbent upon every investigator on that, on that investigation, I'm, I know that they put 100% in. Every officer wanted to solve that crime. And you only got to meet the families to, to understand why they did that. I imagine it would have been mentally very taxing. Is it something that you still find yourself thinking about even more than 20 years later now? Claire, I, I <clears throat> very early in my career made a conscious decision that, that um, I'd lived two lives. When I went to work, I was 100% focused on the work I did. When I went home, I looked after, or interacted and looked after my wife and my children. And, and um, that way I kept myself sane uh, a number of times, particularly in that particular file. Uh, you'd be sitting at home doing something, the phone would ring and uh, you'd get a phone call saying whatever. Um, all of a sudden, the other Paul Ferguson buddy switched on and, and, and you got changed, you went to work and you did the job. If you can't manage your own body, your own mind, then it gets to you in the end. So, um, you know, most, most of the people I work with uh, had that sort of a philosophy whereby uh, you, you live the job 
when you're at work, when you went home, you tried to switch off. The problem I have now, of course, is when people talk to me about some of the horrendous crimes I've seen, you don't have another job to go to, you don't have a, an escape area, and you think more about them. So I actually find it more difficult now than I did at that particular time. I suppose one of the things that would have really stuck with you would have been the, the I don't want to say grave sites or burial sites, but... The crime scenes. The crime scenes where yeah. Jane and Kira's bodies were found. Just, mm. just how, con how confronting is it going to a scene like that? Oh, I won't get into the individuals about those two, but, but any, I, I, I try... I've got this drawer at the back of my brain, right down the bottom, and, and there's many pictures that I've seen that I sit in there and I try not to pull out. Um, it's not natural. You think about ambulance op uh, uh, operators, you think about um, uh, doctors and things like that. I don't think the human body was ever designed to be able to um, uh, just look at and, and, and accept what you see. Crimes are terrible, terrible things. Um, because they've occurred as a result of uh, something was never planned. Um, so you go there and there's always two victims. There's the deceased and then there's the family of the deceased. Uh, the deceased you're working for to try and resolve what happened, how it happened, why it happened. The family of the deceased want to know those same things, but they're also grieving because they've lost someone. And then you as the investigator have got to try and manage those two things. And that's one of the, the, the problems with this particular investigation. There's, there's three living families there that, that have lived with this for so long. And people like myself and all the other blokes, uh, ladies and, 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 and on blokes on the team, um, that's what they work for, to try and give those families the answers. That was Claire Durrell talking to former detective Paul Ferguson. Coming up, how did former police commissioner Carlo Callahan feel when he got to announce the historic news that the police had finally made an arrest? Reporter Lee Steele found out. That's next. Looking for your next favourite podcast? Why don't you head over to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It was a murder investigation that seemed to never end. Many had lost hope that we would ever know what happened to three young women who were abducted and murdered. And then in 2016, the then police commissioner, Carlo Callahan made this announcement. Detectives from the Special Crime Squad have charged a 48-year-old Kudal man with the murders of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon and attacks on two other young women. The man was arrested at his Kudal home yesterday and charged in the early hours of this morning. 
It will be alleged that the man abducted 23-year-old Miss Rimmer in the early hours of June the 9th, 1996, after she'd had a night out with friends in Claremont. Her body was later discovered in Wellard on August the 3rd, 1996. Police were also alleged he abducted 27-year-old Miss Glennon on Friday, March the 14th, 1997, after she too had been out in Claremont. The commitment of the WA police and its officers have never wavered. We never give up. The former police commissioner spoke to 10 News First reporter Lee Steele. Colour Callahan, you were in the police force when Sarah Spears first disappeared. I was, yes, I was a senior sergeant, so I wasn't directly responsible for the investigation at that stage, I was somewhere else. But like anybody in Western Australia, I would have been interested in what was happening and, and concerned. When you became commissioner, this was already about six or seven mm. years after Sarah Spears first disappeared. It was, yes, and, and like any incoming commissioner, uh, at the time I was briefed on where that investigation was, what had occurred up to that point in time and what was planned for the future. So certainly it was an investigation that was on my radar uh, when I became police commissioner and actually for most of my time as com police commissioner because it wasn't until 2016 that I was able to announce that a, an arrest had been made. Where was the investigation at when you first came on as commissioner? Well, there was a lot of suspects, and I think the, the police commissioners actually said there was something like uh, 18,000 or something over the years. Not suspects, I shouldn't say that, probably persons of interest. So a lot of people uh, were either witnesses or, wanted, or, or needed to be investigated or looked at or checked. So a lot of work had gone on to that stage, but there was still a lot of work to go. And I think putting that in perspective, the other thing which uh, in those days had occurred is DNA technology was advancing. So by the time I took over as police commissioner, DNA technology was more advanced than it was in 1996. And of course, by 2016, it was far more advanced. So what were some of the challenges that were facing police over the years? I think the difficulty was always trying to identify the offender and trying to find a link between the crime scenes and the person who had committed those offences. So that link uh, was needed to be established before you could actually charge somebody. And the investigation itself, I can't imagine how many resources went into this. Just, just give us a bit of an idea. Well, I think yesterday the police commissioner came out and said there was about 700 police officers over the life of this inquiry involved. Now, some of those were detectives, obviously, but there were analysts, there were undercover officers, there were forensic specialists, and there were officers simply taking phone calls and information from the public. So over the life of that investigation, there was a lot of police who dedicated their time to this to, to bring this to a conclusion. And what was the atmosphere like in WA, especially in those first sort of few years? It was something that was just casting a huge shadow over the streets of Claremont, but also the streets of Perth. Yeah, I think people were in fear, as they would be with a, with a type of crime of this nature. So people were concerned about going to Claremont. Parents were concerned about their children going to Claremont at night and it really did have an impact on the psyche of the people of Perth. It's a little bit similar to what happened way back in 1964 with Eric Edgar Cook, when everybody would have been on high alert then because of the killings around Perth. We've largely forgotten about those things because so much time has elapsed, but we're still very close, relatively speaking, to what happened in Claremont. When you came on, what was your mission? Did you have a new direction with where this investigation was going or were you leaving it up to the macro task force? 
Well, part of the thing that we did was to make sure that the macro task force always had fresh pairs of eyes because in these long running inquiries, it's very easy to get focused on one line of inquiry. So I was concerned and, and most of the senior team were concerned, it wasn't just about me, about making sure that different people went in and there were fresh pairs of eyes and regular reviews of the material to make sure things weren't missed or to make sure that all the leads were followed. Is that vital in any investigation or I guess in any cold case? Yes, well, any review of, a, of a, an investigation that goes on for time needs to be reviewed, needs to be checked, needs to have a fresh pair of eyes over it, and questions need to be asked. That's actually part of the process of longer running investigations now for anything that the police are doing. You must have had so many false leads over those, over those first few years especially, and, and over the decades to come. Well, that's part of the inquiry process though, isn't it? You identify persons of interest and you have to eliminate those people or include them and deal with those one by one. So a lot of information comes in. You can imagine, <coughs> you can imagine a member of the public ringing and saying, I've got a piece of information. That piece of information needs to be checked out and it may not lead anywhere. When did you first learn of Bradley Robert Edwards? 2016. Wow. And that was the year that he was arrested. So talk us through, I guess, the moments leading up to the arrest when police first, when detectives first told you that this might be the guy. Well, obviously there was some conversation some time before the arrest was made that they had identified an offender and that they, were con they wanted to make sure that everything was in place before an arrest was made. So there was a lot of work done and I was aware that we were getting close for some months. I was also very careful not to get too excited about this early on because we'd seen false uh, leads before. Um, but on the day that he was arrested, or just prior to him being arrested, I was informed that the arrest was going to be made by the Assistant Commissioner for Crime. And with the investigation into him, can you give us some sort of idea of how he was being monitored in those months before his arrest? Well, I think, you know, once the DNA profiles had been matched, there was, and we know from some of the material that's been uh, proven in court, that he was followed by undercover officers in order to get a DNA profile. And that DNA profile eventually came from a bottle of Sprite, which was discarded at a cinema in Perth. And so he was watched, and uh, he was watched by detectives for a long time before the arrest was made, obviously to see whether we could get any further information. So it was really Kira Glennon's death and the investigation into her death and the DNA found under her fingernails that ultimately led to this arrest. It was that and being able to identify the profile of Bradley Robert Edwards, which was the difficulty earlier on because we had the DNA, we had the DNA profile, but we couldn't match it to any individual person. So when his DNA was found on other forensic material in the West Australia Police, then the match could be made. What happened in the 24 hours before he was arrested? Well, there was a lot of preparations, obviously. It was a fairly significant operation. I wasn't in the operation itself because I was the police commissioner, but it was a very detailed operation and it was very finely tuned to make sure that it went off without a hitch. And how did it, how did it fold, unfold? Well, it unfolded pretty well. I mean, Bradley Robert Edwards was arrested and then there was an interview process and he was charged and that all happened in very short order. And now we see nearly three years later, or more than three years later actually, the outcome of the case. You know, a, a good outcome, I think. 
How was how did he react during during that interview when police did they storm in and arrest him? Well, it's hard to say from my perspective because I wasn't there and I was very careful not to direct the way that detectives go about their business. They are the experts and they make the decisions on the ground about how they do it. But generally it was I think the best I can say is it went off without a hitch. How did you feel when you were first told that, that he was arrested and it went off without a hitch? Well, obviously I was very elated that you know we had, we had brought this to a conclusion, we had charged somebody, and I was able to go out and tell the public for the first time in a very long time that we had made a significant uh, advance in the Claremont inquiry. So that was good from that point of view, but I guess there's also a degree of nervousness because at that point you've still got to get the thing to trial and you've still got to get the charges proven. And I guess police would have had to follow procedures so strictly, given that the stakes were so high. Well, I think even if you look at my 2016 announcement, it was very carefully scripted, which is not like me. You know, I, I, I'm, I was not the sort of police commissioner to have a script. I would go in and talk to the media. But this needed to be carefully scripted because we didn't want to say anything at all that would jeopardise the trial. And I took no questions from the media either because we didn't want to be in a situation where we made an answer that could be misconstrued. Were you in close contact with the families before he was arrested? Was it a case of telling them that, you know, we, we do have a main suspect, mm. but we can't do anything just yet? Or, or did, were they across the details closely? Well, I wasn't. We have a liaison team that were in very close contact with the families and they would have kept them advised on, on how this was travelling. Have you been in contact with the families over the years? Look, uh, only, from a, only from a very high level. So most of the contact with the families has been done by the liaison officers who build up a good relationship uh, and are able to deal with all of the difficult issues that come up in a relationship like this. And this was such a complex investigation, wasn't it? We, we know it's Australia's longest running murder investigation, um, <clears throat> the most expensive mm. murder investigation. They're, how would you describe it? Well, it is probably the longest running murder investigation, well, active murder investigation. Of course, there are others that have not been solved in Australia, so we shouldn't discount those. But there was an enormous amount of effort, resources, money. And the thing that, that I always say about this was it was the dogged determination to never give up by those detectives which brought this to a conclusion. And I think the public of Western Australia can take real heart from that. And they were there every day of the trial. I noticed that there was a team of about five or six detectives who were there, who were there most days. It must just be so vital for them to see this to the very end. Absolutely. And that's also to take nothing away from the hundreds of other officers who put their heart and soul into this over the years. Because it really was an international investigation, wasn't it, in the end? Was it FBI involved at one point? And I know that the UK Forensic Science Service was also involved. Well, a number of different people gave us advice. A number of people came over and reviewed the case. So people were coming from different parts of the world to do that, and indeed Australia. The, a lot of the forensic material was dealt with in the UK because of the level of technology and scientific expertise that they had over there compared to what we had in Australia at the time. So it was really uh, an international cooperation. So when the trial began, uh, you, you must have been following that incredibly closely. Yeah, well, of course, because I wasn't in the police when the trial began, I could only follow it through the media like every other member of Western Australia. So yes, I was interested. Yes, I read that. But of course, I, I missed out on a lot of the nuances that might have occurred in court because I wasn't in court. And then we had the bombshell verdict yesterday. Mm. How, what was your reaction? 
Well, again, I think enormous sense of relief that we had got a conviction. Some trepidation and some sadness that the Spears family had not got any closure. Um, but I think that the way that the judge summed it up, I think he gave the Spears family some hope by saying it, it was likely that Bradley Edwards did abduct Sarah Spears, but there wasn't enough evidence legally to convict him of that. How would you describe Bradley Edwards? Well, I can only describe him from a distance and from what I've seen uh, other people describe him as, and I think he's slightly psychopathic, but not what you would expect of someone who's accused of these terrible murders. And why is that? Well, I think that's just because that's the nature of, uh, of this type of offender, that they're not necessarily high-profile people that stand out and say, look, I'm a very dangerous person. They're exactly the opposite. They go about their lives in a normal way, but they're very cool, calm and collected. So I understand, and I haven't been in the court, that he didn't show that much emotion during the trial, for argument's sake. He, he didn't. He barely showed any emotion. He would occasionally smile at his parents, but same with the verdicts were read out yesterday. He didn't really, didn't really show much emotion at all. And do you think one of the scariest parts of this is the fact that he was hiding in, in the community um, for about 20 years, hiding in plain sight? Basically. Well, I think hiding in plain sight is a real good way of putting it. And of course, that's the way with many people who've committed such terrible murders, that they hide in plain sight. In fact, because he went undetected for so long, he would have been able to create a, a, an aura of normality around him and people would naturally suspect him of being a killer. When he was arrested, I guess, looking at profiles, I know that you didn't have anyone in particular because you say that that excludes everyone, but is he someone that, I guess, fits a particular profile when it does come to serial killers? No, look, I don't think there is a particular profile and we, we would be remiss if we started to categorise people that way. But I think it's not unusual for people who have committed killings to try and leave, lead a normal life and give the impression to the world that everything is normal because obviously they want to go under the radar. They don't want to become noticed by their behaviour. Were you surprised by the judgment, two guilty verdicts, one not guilty verdict? Is that what you're expecting? I think those of us who had some legal exposure and knowledge of the law thought that it would be always difficult to convict Bradley Edwards where there was no crime scene or body. So because this was a forensic linked type of case, you needed to have a link to the crime scene to be able to establish that that murder occurred and that person was responsible. So I think the absence of the body made it very difficult uh, and that probably could never be resolved unless we found Sarah Spears. Will that be an ongoing investigation? I understand that police have vowed to never give up searching for her. Well, I think the police commissioner said as much and I think the community of Western Australia would expect that that case is never closed until um, Sarah Spears is found and that would pr pr provide enormous closure for her family too. How are you feeling for the family? Oh, look, it, it, I think it's unimaginable to try and... In, to go through this. I, I couldn't even begin to interpret how the family are feeling about this, but I feel incredibly sad that they haven't got closure. I'm also fairly sure that they would have been prepared for this moment by the liaison officers. It still isn't over. I guess there are, there's always the chance of appeals in this case. Is Are, are you expecting to see something like that? Oh, well, I don't, it's hard to predict whether an appeal will come forward, but it would be very difficult to appeal on a judge-only trial where you have someone of the capacity of uh, Stephen Hall to try and 
uh, you know, launch an appeal. I just don't think one would be successful even if it was launched. Uh, it was almost impossible for Bradley Robert Ebers to be able to have a, a, a jury trial, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah it would. it's impossible. And the good thing about this is with a judge trial, there will be a written a result. So there'll be, a, I, I understand it's something like 600 pages. So people will be able to see in forensic detail how this whole thing was considered. And then there's also the sentencing coming up. Do you think will he'll ever be released from jail? Look, I think it's unlikely. It's I think it's likely we'll see the DPP ask for a never-to-be-released type of sentence. Even if that didn't occur, I can't see an Attorney-General in the future agreeing to release him back into the public. In terms of your career, would this be the, the main highlight for you, the arrest of Bradley Edwards? Well, it's one of the highlights. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen in a police commissioner's career, but operationally, it certainly is one of the highlights. It was one of the questions that was put to me at the very beginning by a journalist, actually. Will you be the police commissioner to solve the Claremont killings? And before I finished, I was able to announce that. And you must have been incredibly proud to be part of a, for a force that finally got their guy. Yeah, I'm incredibly proud, but I'm incredibly proud of the team that worked on this, at least during my 13 years as police commissioner, who just kept going at it, even when, you know, it was getting really difficult. Did you ever think that this would be solved? Oh, I think we all had our doubts over the years, but, you know, with each year came a new lead, a new idea, a new direction, and it gave us fresh hope. So, I mean, that's the importance of never giving up because there's always, always something new that can happen or can come over the horizon that you can follow. And I guess this is important for police to say they're never going to give up looking for Sarah Spears. No, they won't. And, and look, on, on many, many other unsolved crimes, these are cold cases that the police always have on their radar and police go back to them time and time again. So even with other unsolved crimes, in Western Australia at least, they're always open and police are always looking at them for more ideas, more clues, more directions. I found it fascinating when the Premier, Mark McGowan, came out and said, tell us where Sarah Spears is, mm. even though he had been found not guilty of killing Sarah Spears. What did you make of the Premier's announcement yesterday? Well, I think that the uh, judge has said that it's likely that Bradley Edwards did abduct Sarah Spears. And, I, and although the burden of proof couldn't be reached from a legal perspective, I think what the Premier is doing is appealing to Bradley Edwards to say, look, as a human being, why don't you tell us if you know where Sarah Spears' body is? Now, I'm sure the police will be asking that question too, uh, in short order. So particularly after the sentencing, I'm sure there'll be a conversation at some time between police. And in fact, the police commissioner has said so between the police and Bradley Edwards about trying to understand if he knows where she is. Lee Steele there, talking to former police commissioner Carlo Callahan. I'll see you next time on 10 News First Person. Hi, I'm Leah Harris. In the Where's William Tyrrell podcast, I told the story of the little boy who disappeared from his foster grandmother's home more than five years ago as the journalist who's been on the journey since day one. It's a story that is as baffling as it is heartbreaking, and I'm glad we could give William's foster parents the chance to tell their side of the story in their first interview in almost four years. 
The most recent episodes have focused on the coronial inquest into the disappearance of William Tyrrell along with the case against former lead detective on the investigation, Gary Jubilant. And I spoke with Mr Jubilant not long after he was convicted of illegally recording a person of interest in the case. You can listen to Where's William Tyrrell and our other 10 Speaks podcasts on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.